Hello and welcome to Messages at BBC. In these messages, you'll hear from professors, staff, guest speakers, as well as students. These messages were spoken and recorded on campus at Boise Bible College. If you'd like to check out Boise Bible College, please see our website at boisebible.edu. I don't know if you've noticed, but it's kind of a mess out there. Man, you know, I mean, people just, uh, people just sort of do what seems best to them. It's a place where people just sort of do what seems best in their own eyes. Everybody just kind of navigating the world in order to whatever compass they prefer and choose. And you know, I, I don't know any nice way to put this. The track record of people living life as seems best in their own eyes is a track record of unmitigated disaster. When people do what seems best in their own eyes, it leads lots of places, but ain't none of them good. And in a world like that, man, it's, if, if you've got any heart for God and any interest in people, it just kind of makes you want to step in and do something, doesn't it? And yet, I don't know if you've ever wrestled with this, but as a product of a messed up world, I kind of have to admit I'm a little messed up myself. And that even no matter how I might want to work to help deliver other people from their mess, I am a potential deliverer in need of deliverance. But I have good news for you this morning. I do have good news. The good news is this. If you decide you want, for the sake of God and the power of God, to be a part of the delivering activity of God, here is my good news for you this morning. God is at work, not only when you are at your best, but also when you are at your worst. That God is at work through us, but that praise Jesus for his good and by his grace. When God is not at work through us, he can still be at work in spite of us. When you step into the work of ministry, you are stepping into a place that God has always been. He was there before you. He is there with you. He will be there after you. The best thing I know about the work of leadership ministry is that ministry is ultimately God's work. It is. So in case you're ever tempted to believe that everything depends on the quality of your life, the, pro the quality of your preparation, 
and the quality of your service. Let me just free you from that burden right here, right now. Ministry ultimately is God's work. And God is so big, God is so God, that even when you aren't at your best, God's always at his best. Ministry is God's work. And therefore, even when we get in the middle of it in ways that are a little messy, God, the ultimate deliverer, is still quite capable of delivering. Now, what I'd like to do to unpack that for just a little bit this morning is to invite you to turn with me, if you would, to the book of Judges. I know this may come as a bit of a surprise. It didn't come to, as a surprise to some of you who could figure out through my language where I might be heading. I want to invite you to turn to Judges chapter 3, where we are going to begin in just a moment with verse 12. Judges chapter 3. Now, in case you've not spent a lot of time in the book of Judges, here's how we come to this point in the story. God has called the Israelites, declared the Israelites to be his people. And he has delivered them from the hand of Egypt. He has promised them a land. And Moses has taken them to the cusp of that land. Ever hear of Moses? There's a Ten Commandments movie. It looked a little like Charles, Charlton Heston back in the day. But now Moses has gone to be with the Lord. And God raised up another man by the name of Joshua. And he was a man through whom God worked to deliver the Israelites into the land God had promised them. But Joshua was also finite. And Joshua, like Moses, his leadership predecessor, also died. And with both Moses and Joshua no longer on the scene, the people of God dwelling in a land the gracious God had promised and had delivered into their hands. A land promised to their forefather Abraham. Sons and daughters of Abraham blossomed into a nation, experienced a vacuum of spiritual leadership, and looking around with no Moses, no Joshua, they began to do what seemed right to them in their own eyes. Surrounded by ungodly influences. Surrounded by an ungodly culture. They became, rather than a transforming influence, a transformed people. Not transformed into the ways of Yahweh, 
but transformed instead into the ways of the peoples and the dominant culture and various smaller expressions of that in which they found themselves. And that never turns out well. And so the book of Judges describes a cycle of events in which the people of God regularly slip into culturally influenced ungodly practices. And after experiencing the pain and the consequences of that, they cry out in their despair. They cry out in pain. And God in his grace, not because they particularly deserve it, and not even necessarily because they're particularly repentant. The word that is used to describe this, although scholars often think it implies repentance, the word itself simply means to cry out in pain. And God in his goodness intervenes. And he intervenes through deliverer figures called judges. They don't wear black robes. They don't have mid-afternoon television shows. They are primarily military leaders, although not always. And God works through them, though they themselves are flawed, they are willing. And God uses them at their best and in spite of their worst to deliver people. Now, the specific event we're going to look at is in Judges chapter 3. And in Judges chapter 3, beginning in verse 12, let me just, let's just kind of walk through some stuff here. Just want to unpack this story for a little bit and show you some stuff that's going on. And I want you to be encouraged. Remember the point here. I want you to be encouraged by the fact that God can work through you, not only when you're at your best, but also when you're at your worst. That the delivering activity of God, even through you, doesn't demand your best. It just demands your willingness. And that God is so God that even when you're unwilling, he can work through you in spite of you. And Judges chapter 3, here's how that unfolds. The people of God again do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And God raises up someone to discipline. He raises up a nation of people to discipline. He raises up a coalition of nations to discipline them. And in so doing, the king of Moab accumulates Ammonites and Amalekites, and they go and defeat the Israelites. Now, here's what you need to know about this Midianite Moabite king by the name of Eglon. These are people who are the relatives of the Israelites. 
okay? They are actually descendants of Abraham as well through Abraham's second wife. Now, oppression is bad enough, but man, oppression that comes from your relatives, that really hurts. And that's what happens here. So God raises up this people to discipline his people. And for 18 years, that's as long as some of you have been alive. For 18 years, they suffer at the hands of this coalition and the Moabite who puts them together. And so they have to do things like pay taxes, heavy taxes. It's called tribute in the text. Tribute doesn't mean, oh, let me honor you because I so want to. Tribute means I am going to take your money whether or not you want to. So there's a lot of taxation and there ain't no representation. (laughs) You understand what I'm saying here? And they can dump all the tea in any harbor they want to. It ain't going to change a thing. So now the Israelites have raised up for them by God a leader figure, a military leader figure, a deliverer figure by the name of Ehud. You can call him Ehud. You can call him Ehud. You can call him lots of things. But the most important thing isn't what you call him. The most important thing is the fact that God called him. All right? So here is Ehud. And he is going to lead an entourage that is going to bring the taxation to the king. And so here goes this parade, this parade that nobody except the Moabites wants. Here goes this parade to deliver the taxes. And amidst all of that, here's what happens. The deliverer figure, Ehud, prepares for the parade. He's not getting on a marching band outfit. He's not practicing his trumpet. Ehud crafts for himself a sword. And it's a special sword. It's a rare word for sword. Because it is a uniquely crafted weapon of deliverance. It is not a long sword. It is one cubit long. And believe me, that cubit of length is going to exact more than one cubit's worth of influence. Okay? It's a small little sword. And you can just see this, you know, you can see this deliverer figure putting together his sword. And you can just see what he's thinking, can't you? Even as he crafts that sword, he's figuring out how he's going to use that sword. He's thinking, you know, 
Qubits, four bits, six bits, a dollar, all for Yahweh. Stand up and holler. He's ready. He's ready. He's taking fencing lessons. He's ready. And he crafts a two-edged sword that does not have a hilt in it. You know that little thing that stops the sword so that you'll be able to pull it back out and use it again? It is a sword crafted for one-time usage. It is, you might say, disposable. And off he goes, off he goes, bringing the taxation, which I may have mentioned was without representation. And in bringing that sword, the text makes note of some other things. Like, for example, the fact that this deliverer figure is left-handed, not right-handed. In this world, many of you already know there was some social stigma associated with that. Now, if you're left-handed, you have no reason to apologize for that. I rather suspicion that deep down somewhere in my natural design, I am probably myself left-hand dominant. That plays out as relatively ambidextrous because I was sort of forced to be right-handed. And a lot of people were in this world because of the amount of stigma that was associated with being left-handed. But because Ehud is left-handed, unexpected, little improbable, he's going to strap the sword to his right leg. And what that means is, when they are coming toward the palace and they go through TSA, here's what happens. They're going to kind of do the whole left leg pat down. Because everybody knows, I mean, if you've ever, ever, ever considered swordsmanship, you know, it gets really awkward if you try to draw out a sword like this. You want to draw that sucker across. Now, say what you will about the TSA agents on the scene. They don't seem like the brightest (laughs) contingent of security guards. It could be that these gentlemen are sort of one ham sandwich short of a picnic. But that's it. The deception in this includes the fact that here's this left-handed guy raised up by God. He puts the sword not on the left side, but on the right side so he could draw a cross. And this group, this group of security personnel, who make Barney Fife look like a Mensa card-carrying genius. Save a few calories, just patting the left side, go right on through. He has arrived with more than just a physical weapon. He has arrived with an additional weapon. The weapon of deceit, exercised not only through where the sword is strapped, but also through the subtle use of language. So here's a man, left-handed, there's a surprise. Sword strapped to the right leg, there's a surprise. 
who's got more surprises left to come. So after he's delivered the taxation, which I may have mentioned was without representation, he says to King Eglon, King Eglon, I have a message for you. It is a special message. Now, the only problem with that is when you read what he says in Hebrew, here's what you discover. The word that is translated message there, what he says is, I have a word for you. The Hebrew term has two primary meanings. The first of it, the first of those meanings is word or message. The second of those meanings is object. I have a special object for you. In fact, I crafted it for one-time usage. So what happens is, here's, here's Eglon. You know, Eglon, Eglon is, the text says, a large man. Now, there's no fault in that. There's no crime in that. I don't know. I don't know the reasons for this. But either way, you sort of get the impression that Eglon might have a little trouble passing the basic military fitness test for whatever reason, whether it's too much time at the all-you-can-eat Chinese buffet or whether his Fitbit is just not exactly being stressed to its breaking point. Either way, here's what's clear. This man is no lean, mean fighting machine. And the funny thing about the word fat is, it isn't just a word that is used to describe physical lethargy. It is a word that is used to describe mental dullness as well. This guy ain't in fighting shape. He ain't in fighting shape here, and he ain't exactly in fighting shape here either. That's the deal. And so, when the deliverer says, oh, I have a message for you, O king, Eglon just thinks to himself, well, goody, goody. This is fantastic. You know what would be an awesome move right now? I think I'm going to dismiss my entire security entourage and welcome into my private quarters a guy who was responsible for bringing to me taxation, which was without representation. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to dismiss everyone from the room, and he and I are going to sit down, and I'm going to receive his special message. Oh, yes, you are. And so, with no defenses and in no position to defend himself, some stuff happens that I'd really rather not talk about this morning, but that's right there in the text. Suffice to say, the sword does its work. The deliverer delivers. And what happens when the king dies is pretty common when people die. 
His bowels relax and discharge, which creates some, you might say, multi-sensory evidence <laughs> for the security personnel who are waiting outside the locked door. These fellows who aren't real sharp, nevertheless know this. There are just times in life where you don't want to interrupt the king. And they conclude, well, people got to do what they got to do. The king is doing what he's got to do. And I'm not going to interrupt him. You're going to interrupt him. I'm not going to interrupt him. And through the comedy of biology, there's just enough time while these two guys, have you seen, you know, that toilet paper commercial, that enjoy the go commercial? They're just kind of going, yeah, we're going to let Eglon, you know, enjoy the go. And it leaves enough time for Ehud to escape. He escapes, rallies the troops. They rout their oppressors. Israel is free, and the land experiences rest for 80 years. You kidding me? What on earth am I doing talking about that during Spiritual Emphasis Week? What do you say after that? We'll just go out and apply the word, brothers and sisters. <laughs> See, here's the thing. The book of Judges is one of the most artistic books in the entirety of the Old Testament, not because the message is pretty, but because it's portrayed artistically and well. It's like a piece of art that is presenting something horrible. If you're portraying a horrible event and you sanitize it so that it's not like offensive, that's not actually good art. It's actually really crummy art. And this is literary genius. And what happens in this book and what is reflected in this event is that even the delivering activity of God through willful people who are trying in some sense to be faithful to him gets all boogered up. It just does. Throughout the book of Judges, even the judges act more like Israel's oppressors than they do orthodox followers of Yahweh. There aren't many of the judges and none of the major judges what I really want teaching my Sunday school class. Ehud is flawed. Gideon is flawed. Jephthah is flawed. Samson is flawed. All of them are willing. All of them are flawed deliverers. Because each of them reflects the surroundings of their culture. So here's the deal. The text never says, hey, you know what? If you want to be a part of God's delivering activity, craft special swords, lie, 
and kill people. I mean, sorry, I mean, for those of you who are hoping that was where this was going. The text never affirms the methods used to deliver. The text never affirms even the motivation of the judge who delivered. In fact, unlike people like Samson who come later and the text describes the Holy Spirit clothing them, coming upon them, the only references to the activity of God in this text are what Ehud says, not what the objective narrator of the text says. God's at work, but it's pretty subtle. And yet, here's the good thing. There's a lot about the judge's motivation that's kind of unclear. In case your motivation ever gets a little clouded, and in case your motivation ever gets contaminated by cultural influences upon you, I have really good news. God can work through you even when your motivation is imperfect or uncertain. If you ever just happen to mess it up and out of pure or impure motivation employ methods that are a little or more than a little suspect, I have good news for you. Ministry is God's work first, and he can work through you even when your methods are less than perfect. Do you know who would have just giggled with glee at Eglon's strategies in this text? A Moabite would have. Do you know? Well, I'll just stop. I could keep going. I'll just stop right there. A Moabite would have. So he is employing the kinds of strategies, not that Yahweh says, you know, Yahweh doesn't say, hey, play games with words and deceive the king. God doesn't, it doesn't say, by the spirit of the Lord, Ehud crafted a two-edged sword to kill a guy that wasn't exactly in fighting shape. The text doesn't say any of that. The text does say that God was at work in spite of that. I hope this morning, through this unusual text, you are experiencing an unusual level of encouragement. Encouragement is that God can work through you even when you're not at your best. We ourselves, even as we attempt to be instruments of God, are never free from our need from the deliverance of God. God is not surprised by that. Because even this text, even this text acknowledges the need for something that had not escaped the mind of God. 
And that is the need for a deliverer figure, pure, perfect, and worthy as an instrument in God's hands. And God himself knew that a deliverer worthy of being used by his hands was a matter he was going to have to take into his own hands. And so in a world in which even the deliverers need deliverance, God sent his very own son to deliver even his deliverers from their sin. And stepping into a world in which even spiritual leaders were themselves contaminated beyond their awareness by the culture that surrounded them. He stepped in in a God-sized way like only God can and did what was right in his own eyes and in so doing fulfilled a purpose set before the very foundations of the world. And yes, he died. And he died at the hands of deceptive people who thought they were doing God a favor. But he did not stay in the grave. It was a borrowed tomb because he was going to be in there shorter than your borrowed library books. And God raised him. And God exalted him. And he ascended to the right hand of the Father who had sent him. That the very Holy Spirit described here in the book of Judges as the power source for God's deliverance. That very Holy Spirit who worked through the ministry of Jesus himself. The Jesus who has ascended on high to the right hand of the Father. That same Spirit embodies the body of Christ. And you can take that personally. Because Jesus still has a body. You are the body. And that delivering spirit can work through the people of God because the perfect deliverer made it possible for him to work even through imperfect deliverers like us. So here's the deal. On Thursday we're going to talk about what it means to partner with God better. But this morning, we're going to reflect on the ability of God to work through us when we're at our worst. And in just a moment, Dr. Voorhees is going to come up and guide you and me uh, through a little bit of reflection that relates to that. And I want to encourage you with this thought. There's no need 
And there is no reason why you or why I should run from or hide from our brokenness. If you want to be used by God, if you want God to deliver you from you, and if you want God to use you to deliver others, you don't have to live in denial or self-deception regarding your own brokenness. God is not broken by your brokenness. God is not imprisoned by what imprisons you. God is not disempowered by that which seems to have power over you. God is so God, he can take the parts of you that you can barely acknowledge about yourself. And he can use it. And he can use you amidst it. And in so doing, he can use you as a wounded healer. He's been doing it a long time. He's fairly good at it. So let's pray together. And let's reflect together. And maybe let's even share together in and beyond these walls. The God, the perfect deliverer, might continue his glorious work of delivering us and using us to deliver others. For his glory. For the world's good. Pray with me, please, and then I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Voorhees. Lord, we are your people. This is your time. This is your work. And so we invite you to do what you will in response to this message and in response to our reflection. Please work through what has been said where possible. And work in spite of it where necessary to accomplish your purposes for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening today. Boise Bible College exists to raise up leaders for the church, where we value scholarship, humility, innovation, and community. For more information about Boise Bible College, please see boisebible.edu.